I'll invite you to open your Bibles, please, to Philippians chapter 3. Our passage today will be Philippians chapter 3, verses 1 through 3. If you're using the Pew Bible, you can find them on page 981. What are you passionate about? What are you most passionate about? Is it your children? Well, that's understandable. It's good to be passionate about those whom we love. Is it baseball? Well, that's reasonable, especially in October in the St. Louis area. Is it hunting or fishing or hot rods or horses? None of those things are, are bad either. Or maybe for you it's, it's politics or the culture wars. In our passage today, we're reminded again of what Paul is most passionate about. It's the gospel and the followers of Jesus Christ. And it's specifically also the, the, the gospel of justification by faith alone. Let's look at our passage again. Our passage will be Philippians chapter 3 verses 1 through 3. Let's turn our attention again to the reading of God's holy, living, and inerrant word. Paul writes and says, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Brothers and sisters in Christ, this is God's word for you today. The grass may wither and the flower may fade, but the word of the Lord shall endure forever. Please pray with me again. Lord God, we do thank you for that enduring word. Lord, show us in this passage why we have ample reason to rejoice. And we thank you that we don't just rejoice in our circumstances, we don't rejoice in the things of this world, but Lord, you make it possible for us to rejoice in the Lord. Lord, show us why it is that we can have confidence in that truth and help us to not wrongly put our confidence in anything else. Lord, we pray this in the name of Jesus, our Lord. Amen. Well, I laughed when I read this passage this week. Paul, ever the preacher, begins this portion of his letter with the word finally. And then he goes on to write two more chapters. Preachers love Paul for that. It gives us permission, we feel, in our sermons to say finally or, or for my last point and then go on to preach for another ten minutes. Have you heard the joke about the boy who asked his father, what does it mean when the preacher says finally? And the father says to the boy, absolutely nothing. <laughs> Paul begins this portion of his letter by saying finally. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. You know, Philippians is often referred to as the epistle of joy. Joy is 
uh, Paul's made reference to joy and rejoicing eight times already in this letter. And he'll do it again three more times in chapter 4 alone. And we'll talk about it in some detail when we get to that point in the letter. So Paul says, finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. But then it seems like perhaps something comes into his mind. Maybe he was originally intending to, to conclude his letter at this point. He had written those marvelously beautiful words about Jesus in the first part of chapter 2 about how Jesus has been given the name that's above every other name and about how, how every knee should bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. And then Paul says that, that he hopes to be able to visit the Philippians soon and until then he's going to send Timothy and Epaphroditus in his place. And then he writes these words, finally, finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. Maybe he intended for that to, to serve as a final greeting, his, his goodbye to the Philippians. But then another thought comes to mind, a warning. Look out. Be on guard. Be careful. Don't be tricked. Your salvation is at risk. Your faith could be made shipwrecked. Look out, Paul says. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. Now what's Paul talking about here? Well, he's talking about a group of people known as the Judaizers. This group of people are also referred to sometimes in Scripture as the circumcision party. You can read about them in places in Scripture such as Acts 11 and, and 15 and Galatians 2 and 3 and Titus 1. In Acts 15 2, Luke writes of them saying, Some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, Unless you are circumcised according to the tradition of Moses, you cannot be saved. This was a group of people from a Jewish background who professed faith in Christ, but who would insist that in order for Gentiles to be made acceptable to God, in order for them to gain full access into the covenant community of faith, they had to first become like a Jew. And they had to be circumcised and obey other ceremonial laws, Jewish ceremonial laws. Paul encourages the Philippians to rejoice in the Lord. But, but then the thought comes to mind about how there are things that can rob you of your joy. There's people and there are movements and there are aberrant teachings that can rob you of your Christian joy. Look out, Paul says. Paul's passionate about protecting the true gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul's passionate about protecting the Christian's joy. He's passionate about helping Christians to rightly understand what it is that we're to place our faith, our confidence in. He's going to talk about this all throughout chapter 3, and we're going to spend the next several weeks looking at that. Now, it's not really clear at this point as to whether these Judaizers were already in the Philippian church or not. 
If they weren't, Paul had enough experience with them in the other churches to know that it would just be a matter of time before they would surely show up there in Philippi also. Because the gospel has enemies. The gospel of salvation by grace alone, by faith alone, in Christ alone, always has enemies. The gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ always have opponents. Paul's passionate here. He's passionate about the gospel, about what it is, and about what it's not. And central to the gospel message is this idea of justification by grace alone through faith alone. And these Judaizers distort that. Paul doesn't hold back on his opposition and his disdain for these Judaizers, these joy stealers. He calls them dogs. That's harsh. You know, many Jews would frequently refer to Gentiles as being dogs. Jews considered dogs to be unclean because of what dogs did, especially wild dogs who eat who knows what. Dogs were unclean. And it was common for Jews to think of Gentiles and to refer to them in that same way of being despicable. And so they would use this term of derision to describe Gentiles. Well, here, Paul turns the tables on them. And he says of them, do you really want to know what's despicable? Do you want to know what and who's really unclean? Do you want to know what's abhorrent to the Lord? It's anyone who would distort the true gospel message of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's who's a dog. Look out for them, Paul says. Look out also, Paul says, for evildoers. Now, what evil in, is, what's evil in Paul's mind? Again, it's the person who distorts the true gospel of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Because that results in robbing the redeemed of the Lord of their Christian joy. And that's an evil thing. Then Paul makes it very clear to us about what, the, what all the fuss is about when he goes on to say, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. Again, this is referring to these Judaizers who insist that Gentiles must first become like a Jew. They must first be circumcised in order to be acceptable to God. That was a ritual that identified a person as being a member of the covenant community. It helped to identify who was in and who was out. In the mind of the Judaizers, Gentiles were outsiders. You know, you and I can be susceptible to the same tendency. To seeking to determine who is rightly in 
or who should be excluded. You and I can do that too. I wonder, are there any ways in which we might exclude or look down upon others who are outside of our faith tradition, outside of our little group here at Newport? Things like to belong here, to be a truly mature Christian, you need to like and sing the old hymns. Or you need to vote the way that I think you ought to vote. But to to this kind of thinking, Paul says, no, no way. Because if you're making anything be a requirement for full acceptance into the covenant community, that's evil. That's wrong. And that's in direct opposition of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the doctrine of justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. So the question for us today is similar to the question that Paul's dealing with here in his letter to the Philippians. How can one be in a right relationship with God? What's the answer to that question? We must look unto Jesus. Paul's written his readers saying, look out, look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers. And then in verse 3 he says, instead, what we must do, we must look unto Jesus. And we must recognize Him alone as God's provision for the salvation of sinners like you and I. How can you and I be members in right standing in the covenant community of God? It's only through faith in Jesus Christ. For those, Paul says, are the true circumcision, he says in verse 3. Paul makes the Judaizers head explode when he says that these people who are called the circumcision party, he says they're not the true circumcision, but we are. Paul says that the Philippians, most of them from a Greek background and not a Jewish background, And Paul, the one who refers to himself even as a Hebrew of Hebrews in verse 6, says that we, Jew and Gentile together, all we together who have a shared faith in Jesus Christ, we who trust in Jesus Christ alone for our salvation, we are the true people of God. We are the true circumcision. We who worship the Lord by the Spirit of God, Paul says, In verse 3, we worship the one true God who's been revealed to us in the person of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And we do that, Paul says, by the help of the Spirit, who, according to Galatians 3 and 4, testifies to our spirits that we are children of God, spiritual offspring of Abraham, and heirs according to the promise. We worship the Lord by the help of the Spirit of God, Paul says. And we glory in Christ Jesus. We glory in Jesus Christ. We boast in Him and Him alone. We don't boast in the flesh. We don't put any confidence in the flesh, either in what we have done in cutting off a portion of the flesh 
such as in circumcision, or we don't boast, we don't put our confidence in any law-keeping or in anything that we do. But we boast alone, we glory alone, in Jesus Christ alone, and in Him crucified and risen. Have you ever heard of the conversion story of Charles Spurgeon? I was reminded of that again this week as I listened to a sermon by PCA preacher Tim Keller. He was preaching a sermon on John chapter 3 in the words of Christ, where Christ says, you must be born again. And in that sermon, Keller recounted the story of conversion of Charles Spurgeon, that great English Baptist preacher of the 19th century. When Spurgeon was an adolescent, a young teenager, he was struggling to try to figure out Christianity. And one Sunday, he felt compelled by the Lord to go to church. But there was a massive snowstorm. And he couldn't get to the church that he would typically go to. The snow was so much, he could only get to the church that was closest to his, to his home a church of a different denomination, but a church just down the road, around the corner from his home. And when he got there, there were only a few people there. Even the preacher couldn't make it because of the snow. And after a few minutes and nobody there preaching, nobody there leading the worship, one of the people who were gathered there, just one of the members of the church, a layman, got up and began to read a portion of Scripture and to preach. And Spurgeon remembered that the man really wasn't much of a preacher about all that he could do was read a passage of Scripture and then encourage people to trust that and to seek to obey that portion of Scripture. And the man read a portion of Scripture that's found in Isaiah. Isaiah 45, verse 22, which reads, Look unto me, and be ye saved. For I am God and there is none else. And Spurgeon said that the man began to explain the text, saying, you know, you don't even have to lift a finger to look. You don't have to make a thousand pounds a year in income to look. You don't have to, bad, have to be either good or bad to look. And then the man said, don't look to yourselves. For there's no hope there. And then the man put the words of Isaiah 45, 22 in Jesus' mouth. And he said, look to me. I'm sweating great drops of blood. Look to me. I am hanging on the cross. Look to me. I've died and I'm buried. Look to me. I'm risen. Look to me. I'm ascended. I'm going to the right hand of God the Father. Look to me. And Spurgeon said there were only three or four other people there. And the man looked directly into Spurgeon's eyes. And he said to him, young man, you look miserable. And I tell you, you're going to be miserable in life and in death if you don't obey this text. And at that moment, Spurgeon said that he realized that all his life, he was waiting for, him to tell, for them to tell him the 50 things that he had to do in order to get saved. He was looking for something to do in order to merit, in order to justify his salvation. 
Keller said that, that maybe it was that Spurgeon thought of God as being like the Wizard of Oz who would say to him something like, Go and bring me the broomstick of the wicked witch of the West. Spurgeon said, I was ready to be told you have to do these 50 things and then you can be confident that you're saved. And suddenly Spurgeon realized, I just have to look. I just have to look off of myself. I just have to look unto Jesus. He realized that he had been looking to himself for salvation. And Spurgeon says, oh, I had looked and I had looked until I had almost looked my eyes away. Spurgeon realized that he had to repent of trying to save himself. Here's what's necessary for you to be a Christian. You must admit that in your natural state, you are spiritually bankrupt. And you are morally bankrupt. We must admit that we're absolutely helpless and without hope outside of the hope that is Jesus Christ. We must look unto Jesus And the Lord's provision of His sheer, unmerited grace to sinners. We must acknowledge that that we're sinners. And that the wages of sin is death. But we can rejoice in the fact also that the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. We must look unto Jesus and rest in Him and in His merit. Please pray with me. Lord God, I pray that we would look out, that we would look out for those things that might seek to steal our joy. Some of those things are things that originate outside of us. They can also be things that originate inside of us. Lord, we thank you once again as I consider this word. Lord, You call upon us here to rejoice, to rejoice in the Lord. And Lord, we thank You again that joy is one of the spiritual fruit. That thing that You call us to do, You provide. We can rejoice because You have given us joy in the Lord Jesus Christ. Cause us, Lord, to look off of ourselves and to look upon You. But Lord, to do that, we need Your help. We need the help of the Spirit of God so that we would glory in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Spirit, we pray that You would do that for us. We need Your Spirit, Father. We need Your enablement to be able to to rightly worship and to understand these precious gospel truths. Lord, help us to be on the lookout for any sign of self-justification or self-righteousness that can creep into our hearts and in our minds, in our attitudes, especially as we compare ourselves to other people. Lord, help us to see our profound need of you. And may you meet that need fully 
in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ and in His Spirit to enable us to understand and to embrace Him in faith. We thank You that You give us Your love as a free gift. You give us faith as a free gift. You give us grace as a free gift. You give us Your Spirit as a free gift. Lord, You give us the spiritual fruit of faithfulness to remember these things. Lord, work perseverance in our hearts, Lord, we pray. Help us to be passionate about these gospel truths. Help us to be passionate about you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, about your gospel message, about your people. Lord, may we be passionate about helping our brothers and sisters in Christ hang on to their Christian joy. Not by anything that they possess, but because of who you are and what you have done for us. Lord, enable us to take our eyes up off of ourselves and to place them to look up upon Jesus, our Lord and Savior, the author and perfecter of our faith. This is our prayer, Lord. Amen. Well, we must look unto Jesus. And this morning I want to encourage you also to look unto this table where we see again the Lord's provision for sinners. And we must receive that provision given to us in the person of Jesus Christ. We don't add anything to it but our need. The Lord provides it to us out of His sheer grace. We acknowledge our need and we receive what the Lord provides. We acknowledge that we bring nothing but our need and our lack of personal righteousness, and we reach out the empty hand of a beggar to receive the gift of a king, to receive that which the Lord offers us. And we remember again, as I made reference in Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, that even the faith that we need to receive it and to trust in it is a free gift from God to us. Let's pray again. Lord God, we thank you for these truths, Lord, as we prepare to receive your provision of communion, the Lord's Supper. Lord, we pray that you would take these common elements of bread and juice and set them apart for your holy purposes. Lord, use this meal which we are about to partake of um, to nourish us spiritually and to remind us of the life, death, and resurrection and coming again of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is our prayer. Amen.